O come, let us adore him. That is what we are doing right now. And I encourage you to go with me to Galatians chapter 4. And we will adore him from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. That's what I want to lead us in right now. Come, let us adore Christ the Lord from Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Have you ever had something happen to you and you thought that was perfect timing? Just perfect timing. Perhaps it was something a friend or a family member or a church family member did for you or said for you. And you thought that's exactly what I needed at that time. It was perfect timing. Perhaps it was an unexpected check in the mail or financial gift just when you needed it for just the right amount. Perfect timing. In March of 2001, we saw an episode of perfect timing in a Major League Baseball game. Randy Johnson was the pitcher. I don't mean the Baptist minister down the street. Randy Johnson, I think it was for the Arizona Diamondbacks at that time, and he was throwing probably a 90-something mile an hour fastball. And instead of the ball crossing the plate, it hit a bird and just destroyed it. I mean, the bird exploded with that fastball. But you could not have gotten a more perfect timing and probably more imperfect timing for the bird's sake. But it, it was the, the, the chances of that happening were so small. We couldn't believe what we were watching. Professional photographer Martin LeMay was once just hanging out in a park with his camera, and he heard a bird screeching. He looked around to find it, and pretty soon he did, and found that that bird was screeching because a weasel had gotten on its back and was hitching a ride as it was flying around. He caught it on camera, one of the the, the most rare photos ever taken. It was perfect timing. A few weeks ago, My kids and my wife and I went down to Nashville, and my parents took us to see the Nashville Symphony, but this was no ordinary symphony performance. What what they had was a big, huge screen, and you watched the movie Home Alone as the symphony played the score written by John Williams to the movie. It It was absolutely astounding, super fun. But what was amazing was every now and then you would forget that the symphony was even there because they were so good. They were so good, and they were so on time. They had perfect timing. You would forget they were even there. I've seen that movie dozens and dozens of times. I would have known if they had messed up, but they were so right on. Perfect timing. You forgot they were there. And I'll never forget the perfect timing of when when COVID hit and we were going through the book of Numbers here at Columbia Christian Church. Now, you might say COVID was the worst timing. But we were, we were going through the book of Numbers before COVID hit. And it just so happened as we continued through the book of Numbers during the COVID pandemic that the book of Numbers had passages on contagious spread of disease, pestilence, family drama, grumbling and complaining, and hope and despair. It was perfect timing from the Lord. Well, that's what our text is about today. The perfect timing of God in Christmas. We're reading Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5. I don't know if you knew this, but this is a Christmas text. We tend to think of Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 4, maybe Isaiah chapter 9 as as Christmas texts. This is a Christmas text. Let me show you what what I mean. 
Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, this is God's word, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This morning, I want to do something very simple with you. I want to take this passage phrase by phrase. So we're just going to go a phrase at a time, and that's all we're going to do is look at the, the, the phrases one after the other, and through that, I want to lead you in adoring Christ the Lord. Look at the first phrase that it says right there, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time. In other words, when the time was exactly right. When the right time had come. When the right time had come in history, God said to his son, it's time. It's time for you to go down to them. It's time for you to go save them. This had been God's plan since the foundations of the world. And God had waited until the perfect time. We've recently been going through the book of Mark here at Columbia Christian And one of the very first weeks that we were in the Gospel of Mark, we read Mark chapter 1, verse 15, which says this. This is Jesus saying this. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus went around preaching that. He went around preaching, the time is now fulfilled. The time was fulfilled for Jesus to come. The time had even been fulfilled for Jesus to begin his public ministry, right? His, his entire life wasn't public ministry. The time had come. The time is fulfilled. That was Jesus' message, and it's the message of Paul here in Galatians. But, but let's ask this question. Why was that particular time of history the perfect time? Some 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born. Why was that the perfect time? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. God doesn't tell us exactly why he chose that time. We may guess. There have been many guesses over the years. Perhaps it's because of the infrastructure of that part of the world as a result of Roman rule. And and so because of Rome and because of how many lands they had conquered, going back to Alexander the Great, you had many roads at that time. It was one of the the first time where there was accessible roads in many of the, the, the world of that part of the world. And so the gospel could spread easier, many believe. That could have been the reason. Perhaps it was a particular hardness of heart in the Jewish leaders so that the people... Just the everyday Jewish men and women, the people were being unknowingly oppressed by their religious leaders. And so those religious leaders would eventually reject and kill Jesus according to God's plan. Perhaps that's why God chose that time. So that those religious leaders would do what he needed them to do to accomplish the salvation of the world. But whatever God's reason for choosing that time, whatever his reason, we trust that it was the perfect time. We trust that it was the perfect time for whatever the reason, because God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. Everything God does is perfect. The Jews, if you remember, had waited centuries for the Messiah. Centuries. Generation after generation after generation, longing for the time when he would come. They had the promises of the Old Testament. So many of those promises 
put hope in their hearts. They had been waiting for centuries for this Messiah. And then finally he came. But just because they had waited for centuries does not mean God's timing was off. His timing was never wrong. It was always perfect. In fact, Scripture tells us God is not slow to fulfill his promises, even though some of us at times think he is. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That passage right there is not talking about Jesus' first coming. It's talking about his second. And those of us who are in Christ and who hope in him and who long for his return, sometimes we get frustrated that he's not coming back. He hasn't come back yet. Lord, when will it happen? The, the entire Bible ends. The last words of the whole Bible are, Come, Lord Jesus. When will it happen, God? Sometimes we're crying out out of our suffering and our frustration and our despair. We're crying out because of these bodies that we have to endure and the sin and the suffering that is around us that we have to endure. God, when will it end? When will you send him? I understand that frustration, brothers and sisters. I long for it. I long for that day. Oh, if it was today. Oh, if it was today. Be so happy to, to just not have Christmas if it was today. But the Lord is not slow, even though we sometimes think he is. He is not slow. He is patient. They were waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come. The fullness of time there means that the time had come for God not only to send Christ, but to fulfill all of his wonderful and precious promises in the Old Testament that a Messiah would one day come and save God's people. Read through the Old Testament sometime and pay attention to all the promises of the coming of this Messiah. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3.15, right after the first sin, when God said that, that one of the offspring of Eve would come and crush the serpent. It goes all the way back to Isaiah 7, when it says that there would be a virgin that would have a baby. Or Isaiah 53, that this suffering servant would one day be a substitute for sinners in his death. Or Daniel chapter 7, that there would come one like a son of man. And then when Jesus came, he actually used that title for himself, his favorite title for himself. And so when the fullness of time had come, what's the next phrase? God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. There is a whole doctrine bound up in this one phrase. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. God sent forth his son. God did not create a son when Mary conceived. No, he sent forth the son he already had. Christ existed with God from eternity past. Before the, the, the earth was even created, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing with one another in perfect communion. One God, not three gods, one God in three persons. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if you follow the progression of John in that prologue to his gospel, you know that he's talking about Christ. 
In the Old Testament, the second person of the Trinity, Christ, God, the Son. In the Old Testament, the second person of the Trinity was active in all kinds of ways. This is a fascinating study in and of itself, if you were to embark on it. But when the fullness of time had come, God said to his Son, It's time. It's time for you to go. The Trinity is an amazing and mind-boggling truth. They say, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your salvation. But if you think too hard about the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. It is that hard to explain. Try to explain the Trinity to a child. Sometimes our children come up to us and ask us, so you talk about Jesus, but then you talk about God. But is is there more than one God? And, And we almost can't even explain it. It's just something that we have to accept. It's there in Scripture over and over again. We speak about Jesus, and we speak about the Father, and we speak about the Spirit, yet they are one. They are equally God, not three gods. They are one God. It was the Son that became a man, not the Father and not the Spirit. It was the Father who sent him, not the Son, not the Spirit. And within this relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is even submission. There's even submission within the relationship. The son submits to the father and goes and does his will gladly and perfectly. Listen to Jesus' words in John 6, verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's even submission in that. God sent forth his son. John three sixteen, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What's the next phrase? Next phrase in our text, verse 4. It says, born of woman. Born of woman. When the fullness of time had come, God said to his son, it's time for you to go down to them. It's time for you to become one of them. You see, born of woman means human. He was human completely and truly human. Jesus was not a fake human. This was not a a God in a body suit, but he was truly human. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus partook of flesh and blood, that he was made like us in every respect except without sin. And because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to sympathize with and help those who are being tempted. He was truly and really human. It is perhaps the most unexpected thing that God has ever done, becoming a man. It is perhaps the most unexpected thing that he has ever done, becoming a man. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, says this is the most difficult thing to believe about the gospel. Not the resurrection, not that a man could die for the sins of the whole world, but the incarnation. That is the most difficult thing to believe about the gospel. We believe it. We believe it with all our hearts. But it's the most unexpected and marvelous thing in the world. Listen to Packer's words from that book, Knowing God. He says, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than 
than, than just stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The boyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And then he says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. No fantasy story that you have ever read that any author has ever dreamt up is so amazing and so fantastic as this truth. God became a man. And it had to be this way. It had to be this way. It's not just marvelous. It's necessary. It had to be this way. He had to be human and truly human so that he could die for our sins. Only a human could die in our place Hebrews chapter 10 tells us the blood of bulls and goats never took away sins. Never took away sins. They were an annual reminder to the people of their need for something to die for them. But they never took away sins. It took a human. A human. Only a human could die in the place of other humans. What's the next phrase in our text? Verse 4. He was born under the law. Born under the law. He was the lawgiver. He is the ultimate judge of those who break his law, and yet he voluntarily placed himself under that same law. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day of his life according to the law. His parents brought him to the temple to present him before the Lord, as every Israelite family had to do with their firstborn sons according to the law. He lived his whole life under the law, under the old covenant. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that, that... Even though Jesus' coming is what sparked the new covenant and all the changes of the new covenant versus the old, he lived his whole life under the old way of things. And so throughout Jesus' life, we see him obeying the law of Moses, holding it in high regard, speaking of it with respect, and even telling others to do what Moses had commanded. But there's more to that phrase, born under the law. You see, most importantly, under the law, Jesus had to succeed where everyone else failed. He succeeded where everyone else failed. He was the only one who ever kept the law of God perfectly. He never broke one of God's commandments, not even in his heart. He always did the good he ought to have done. He did what was impossible for the rest of mankind to do, to live up to the standard of God's law. He did what was impossible for all the rest of us to do, to live up to the standard of God's law. And because he did that, he could really and truly pay for the sins of others because he had no sins of his own to pay for. He had no sins of his own to pay for. He was not condemned before God and under the law. And so he could really and truly die for the sins of others. Now notice the phrase to begin verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. He was born under the law so that he could redeem those under the law. I want to to show you a passage from Galatians here. Galatians chapter 3 actually, which explains this very well. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 13. So if you've got your copy of Scripture open, look at that with me. Just a page back in my Bible. 
Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. There, Paul writes this. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And then verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. To be under the law means to be under its curse. To be under its curse. To be under the law means to live under the tyranny of sin. Now, God's law that he gave in the Old Testament through Moses, God's law is not a bad thing in and of itself. It is not bad. You might read a text like this and think, well, is the law a negative thing? No, the the law itself is good and holy and righteous. It's very good. But the righteous law of God is something that we have all broken. And every human being that's ever lived except for Christ has broken the righteous law of God. All have sinned and have fallen short of God's standard. Now, you might say, you might say because of that, well, if that's the case, Well, then why did God even give it in the first place? Because under the law, we all stand condemned. Under the law, we are all guilty and deserving of punishment, every human being ever, except for Christ. So why did God give the law in the first place at all? Because the law shows us our need for a Savior. The law shows us our need for a Savior. You cannot be saved by obedience to the law. Galatians 3.10, I've got it memorized in the NIV, and I really like the way the NIV says it. it. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So you might be one of those people who really tries hard. Have, Have you broken the law one time? It's over for you. There's no coming back from that. You can't dig your way out of that hole. You can't come to God in that way. You can't come to God by obedience. It said there in that text, the law is not of faith. It's those who do them shall live by them. It's not faith, it's obedience, it's works, right? But you can't get to God that way. No one can because the standard is perfection. Jesus succeeded where all the rest of us failed. And so if you try to come to God by the law, by obedience, by works, it's going to be impossible. We need another way. Well, there is another way. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus lived perfectly under the law. He did what we could not do. And then he took the curse of the law upon himself, even though he did not deserve it. And we did. He took that curse upon himself, even though he didn't deserve it. And we did. And therefore now, we can come to God by another way. Not the way of the law, but the way of grace through faith. What does it mean that Jesus redeemed us? It says that here in our our text, Galatians 4, that he redeemed us. He did this to redeem those who were under the law. What does that mean? Well, to redeem something or someone means to buy back what was once yours. To buy back what was once yours. Jesus did this for us. Jesus did this for us. The price he paid? His blood. His very life. Sometimes Jesus' death on the cross is called a ransom payment. That's very true. 
But who did he make the payment to? Who did he make it to? It's not Satan, as some would say. It is God himself. God himself. For without Christ, apart from Christ under the law, we stood condemned under the wrath of God. When when we talk about being saved, the question is, what do you need to be saved from? What you need to be saved from is the coming wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming. That's why he sent Jesus. So that we could be saved from his own wrath. God sent Jesus to save us from his own wrath. God initiates salvation and saves us from himself. It's God all the way. It's God from first to last. But Jesus paid the penalty, paid the price of his own blood to God, suffering for our sins on the cross to redeem us, to buy us back from under the curse of the law. And then finally, the final phrase in our text, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's the purpose and the goal of all of this? What's the goal of all of it? What's the goal of Christmas? What's the whole point? The whole point is that you could be adopted into God's family. That's the whole point of Christmas. That's that's what everything is for. That's what everything God does is for. That's what this whole Bible is for, so that you could be adopted into God's family. That we might be God's children. That he might be our father. Did you know it it, it is not accurate to say that God is the father of all people? There's a sense in which he's the creator, yes. He creates all people. But scripture never calls God the father of all people. He is only the father of those who have come to him in faith. He is only the father of those who have pledged their allegiance to his son. And have come to him in submission and repentance. It is only those who are in Christ that God is their father. To be adopted by the God of the universe is an astounding thing to think about. To be adopted into his family. You know, when children are adopted, I don't know if any of you have ever adopted a child. When children are adopted, it is an act of completely undeserved grace on the part of the parents. The child did nothing, nothing to deserve this. The child just exists in a state of of need. But the parents are enacting an act of grace, undeserved grace, by adopting this child. That is what God does for us in Christ. Now, I want you to notice finally, at the end of that phrase, notice what he says, that we might receive adoption as sons. Sons? What about daughters? What about women? The Bible is so sexist, right? I mean, come on. Women get the short end of the straw all the time. What is with this? Ladies, this is wonderful news. It is wonderful news. And to the people who read the letter to the Galatians who first heard this, and the same phrase is used in the book of Romans, so the people who would have first heard that, the women who would have heard it, I believe many of them would have been weeping with joy at hearing the word sons right there and not daughters. The reason I really appreciate how the ESV and other translations don't change it to just children, they keep it sons, is because here's the idea. You know your Jane Austen novels? 
Has anybody read your Jane Austen? If not, go read Pride and Prejudice. It's excellent. But Jane Austen has taught many of us, and this existed long before her, but those novels is where I first learned this, that many, many years ago, back in the day, women couldn't have an inheritance from their their, their fathers and from their, their family. You had to marry into it. You didn't get an inheritance from your family if you were a woman. It was the way that society worked. It was very unfair. The women didn't get an inheritance. They had to marry into an inheritance. That's why getting married off was so important for the well-being of that young woman for the rest of her life. The men, man, we had it easy. You just got your inheritance from your parents. Women, not so much. It was completely unfair. But when Paul said this, when Paul said that we might receive adoption as sons, it would have been the most amazing news, especially for the women. You mean I can be treated as a son? You mean I have an inheritance coming to me from this father? An inheritance from him? For me? Yes. All the children of God get his inheritance. An inheritance from him is more and greater than all the riches and the wealth of the world combined. He's the master of it all. He's the creator of it all. He's the owner of it all. And he wants to give his inheritance to all of his children. It doesn't matter if you're male or female or anything else. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, red, anything. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor. It doesn't matter if you have status or not. Everyone gets the Lord's inheritance if they come to him through his son, Jesus. You see, when an adoption happens, it's a beautiful thing. Adopted children are true children. When, when a, a, an adoption happens the way it's supposed to happen, that adopted child now has all the, the rights and privileges and the inheritance of biological children. And so if that family, if that family who's doing an adoption has biological children and adopted children, it would be a gross injustice for them to treat the adopted children as lesser than their biological children. No, that's not the way it's supposed to work. An adopted child has just as much right and is just as much a child as the, the biological children. Brothers and sisters, if you are in God's family today, you are not in the family because you are a biological, a natural child, if you will. You've been adopted into it. You've been brought into the family from the outside by an undeserved act of grace by the Father. 1 John 3, 1, that Bob quoted earlier, says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And we have an inheritance waiting for us on the other side of death that will never perish, spoil, or fade. God is keeping it for us. The Holy Spirit that we have been given, Scripture says, is a down payment, a guarantee of that inheritance that is coming to us later. That's why we long for his return. We long to go be with him. We long to receive our inheritance and to be with him forever and to be free of sin and suffering. If you have never come to Jesus, you have the opportunity to become a child of God as well. It is not only for for, for some special group. It is not only for the elite. It is not only for those who grew up in church. It is not only for those who are, are good, obedient Christian people. It's, it's for sinners. 
is for real sinners. And so if you're a real sinner, if you say, I've got, I've got a messed up past and I've got a whole lot that I need to be forgiven of, that's exactly who God's looking for. I'll end with this. This past week, I spoke with a man who was thinking about his death. He was thinking about the end. And the first question he asked me about it was, what about forgiveness? I've done a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of bad stuff. You could tell he was worried about it. He was ashamed of all the things he, have done, he has done. In the end, when death is near, the, the only comfort is this, that you cannot be saved by your works. You cannot be saved by how good you were. That's not how it works. That's not how salvation works. You are saved if you are saved. You'll be saved by grace through your faith in Jesus. And there is no amount of sin that you have committed that can outweigh his blood. You cannot outsin God's grace. There is no amount of sin and no... No, no gross sin, no horrible sin that you have committed that cannot be forgiven by the powerful blood of Jesus. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why Christmas happened. That's what it's all for. And so I plead with you, if you have not given your life to Christ yet, consider that this morning. You can do so today by repenting of your sin, by putting your faith in Jesus, by giving him lordship of your life, confessing him as your Lord, and by being baptized into his name. And you can wash away your sins and be right with the Lord and have that inheritance waiting for you, be adopted into his family. And so that's where I leave us. Right now, we're going to spend a couple minutes in silent prayer. We give this time each week here at Columbia Christian after the Lord speaks to us for us to speak back to him. Uh, And so we're going to give just a few moments right now. And we encourage you to use this time to pray silently yourself, each one of us. The Lord has laid something on your heart and something on mine as well. Let's all go back to the Lord and pour out our hearts to him in response to what he has just said to us. And after we pray, we'll come back together and we'll have an invitation time for those who may need to respond to God's word in a public way. Let's pray for a few moments.